Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we began early in September, a series called Asking for a Friend, Honest Questions for God. And each week in this series, we are looking at a challenging question, the type of question that if you're a person of faith, you may have tried to avoid over the years because you couldn't come to a place of a satisfactory response. Types of questions that if you're not a person of faith, are there types of questions that perhaps have been a barrier for you to becoming a person of faith? And so each week we're trying to ask these honest questions, offer a Christian response, and I recognize the response can never be comprehensive enough because these are huge questions. But I hope that it's a thoughtful response that spurs on further exploration and equips you for better conversations, that we can have healthy more informed, grounded conversations amongst ourselves as well as with those other folks in your lives who have these types of questions. If you want to hear any of the past questions or responses, you can hear those on our podcast or you can catch them on our YouTube page, PCTRNJ. As we move into today's message, we, we actually just have new neighbors along our back fence and a couple of days ago realized that, oh, they've arrived because there was a giant St. Bernard sitting at the fence. I mean, this beautiful dog. And we have two dogs, and they were very curious about this St. Bernard. And so they were out there at the fence, and they are barking, 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 barking. And this dog is just sitting there regally, like, you don't bother me. And of course, this is not the impression we want to make on our neighbors that we have the most annoying dogs in the neighborhood. So I'm like pulling them inside and I lock them in the house and, you know, get them squared away for a while. And later that day, actually after dark, we put the dogs out again. And from inside, I could hear them barking again. I'm like, no. And so I go out, open the back door, and I'm yelling as loud as I can, trying to get them to come back. And of course, they are so into their barking that they either can't hear me or just don't care, which I'm open but I have to actually go out toward them. And so I start walking across the yard. And if you are a, a dog owner, you know the kind of risk you're taking when you're walking across the lawn in the dark in your bare feet. I'm happy to say I avoided the landmines, but you wanted me to tell you that I stepped. I can tell. I can tell. It's all right, I don't blame you. I did avoid the landmines that evening. But today, as we get into this question, I'm going to tell you up front, I'm going to try to avoid the landmines, but I'm probably going to fail. Because today, you may find yourself at some point offended. You might find yourself frustrated. And I just want to tell you up front that we're in this together. That we're going to strive to be faithful to the reality of the gospel as well as the reality of what's happening in our world. And we got to do this together. So I'm going to try to avoid the landmines with this question. Isn't Christianity and the Bible racist? And even just saying the word, I know the blood pressure for some goes up just a little bit. Because this is such a hot topic in our culture. 
But I can tell you, this is a very real question for some. But have you ever thought of it? You don't have to answer that question, of course. But you may not have even thought that this was a real question. Maybe it's because I'm white. I know that's hard to tell. But I'm not even sure the first time that I realized I was white. It may have been when I was in high school and I started taking basketball seriously and I realized that I didn't have any fast twitch muscle fiber and started, I started looking to the movie White Men Can't Jump as like my great source of hope, like maybe, just maybe. You know, I, I grew up in the mountains in Colorado, just west of Denver. There wasn't a whole lot of diversity where I grew up. So I had the luxury of never really thinking about the fact that I am white. A luxury that I now know my friends who are black, brown, Latino, Asian, it's a luxury that they don't have. I never thought about it as a luxury. But I also never wake up in the morning thinking that I'm going to have a series of encounters throughout the day that are going to remind me of my whiteness. And so this question for you may not rise to one that you feel is most compelling. And yet this has been a very real question for minority peoples throughout history and is still today. And it's an important question not just for minorities but for those who struggle with the Christian faith because they look at the history of the church in America around this issue of race. Isn't the Bible, isn't Christianity racist? And let's go back to the passage we read earlier in the service that Pastor Christian read for us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, back to the beginning, to creation itself, to see, and we see in this what God was up to, what he intended when he created people. He says that he created humanity in his image. God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God has made humans uniquely and wonderfully crafting each and every one as an artist, taking attention to every meticulous detail, giving each inherent worth, inherent value. We are set apart as humans over and even above all of the rest of creation based on the simple fact that unlike everything else, we are created in the image of God. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting question. What race were Adam and Eve? Kind of a trick question, actually. Because here's the thing. It's a trick question because the Bible doesn't actually talk about race. The term race being applied to humans as separating us and categorizing us based on the color of skin didn't even exist until the late 16th century over 1,500 years after Jesus. So here's a thought. God didn't create race. But God did create humanity in His image. He created peoples and families, ethnicities, tribes, and nations. These are all terms that God uses for the thing that He has done in creation. And we see it from the beginning, from Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, where God makes the promise. He says, hey, you want to know what history is all about? Here's a glimpse from the earliest days that all the families, all the nations across the earth, all the families of earth will be blessed through you. All of them, not just some of them, not just your family, 
not just that tribe that I'm going to choose for myself to make myself known in the world, all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And then you go to the very end, and Revelation gives us this picture of what the end of history is going to be like. Chapters 4 and 5, where we get this glimpse, John gets to see a picture of what's happening in heaven. And in heaven, there's the throne for King Jesus who sits in the center of the throne. And around the throne are the creatures and the angels and the elders all worshiping God. And beyond that, there's this incredible throng of people, so many that cannot be numbered from every nation, language, tribe, all giving praise to God. Now, what language are they singing in? All of them. See, this is God's picture of where history is going. It's moving to this beautiful, diverse, mosaic picture of all cultures and peoples gathered around the throne of God. Paul in Colossians 3 verse 11 says this, Here, meaning in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What a radical thing for Paul to have said that there is no slave or free. But wasn't the Bible used to justify slavery? Yeah. It, it, it was and has been. I mean, in the Bible, if we look and we're honest about it, slavery is ubiquitous from the earliest pages of the Bible. Slavery seems to be everywhere. And so some looked at the Bible and they said, look, see, of course, of course the Bible condones slavery. But man, there's a huge difference between descriptive and prescriptive, isn't there? There's a big difference between descriptive, meaning just describing the reality of a situation, and prescriptive, saying this is the best situation to be in. This is what's right and what's good. And I think this is what happens throughout the Bible. It is describing the reality of the situation because in ancient times, slavery was in fact the norm. It was everywhere. But I got to say, the kind of slavery that we find throughout the Bible is different than the kind of slavery that developed in the Americas. Slavery throughout the Bible wasn't race-based. Category of race didn't exist, remember? It wasn't based on the color of skin. It was for a few different reasons. It was frequently because someone found themselves poor and they actually indentured themselves, enslaved themselves to a master in order to either pay off debts or as simply a means, a way of survival. Maybe it was two tribes were in combat against one another. One tribe won, one tribe lost. The losing tribe was taken as slaves. Or maybe, <coughs> excuse me, or maybe it wasn't because of slavery, it was, or I mean because of war, it was because of crime. Slavery was sometimes the punishment that was given. It was a means of meeting out justice in the world. And actually, in the earliest days of the U.S. colonies, slavery looked a lot like this kind of slavery. In the earliest days, the vast majority of those who worked in plantation fields were white. They came from Europe. They'd indentured themselves. They were indentured servants, indentured slaves. They came over with debts to pay, and they worked, often trying to work for their freedom. But eventually, over time, remember the idea of race that began in the late 16th century became commonplace for Europeans and those of European descent in the mid-17th century to start categorizing people based on race and color of skin which helped propel then the race-based slavery that we came to know in America, where Africans were taken captive, often between warring and neighboring tribes, and then slave traders would come and buy the captives and take them to the Americas if they made it. 
estimates say maybe 12.5 million Africans were put on ships to the Americas. Probably 2 million or more died on the way. And all of this shifting happened. Race being defined in the late 16th century and then the first documented sales of slaves in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. And very quickly the question became for the the colonies, how do we justify this activity? How do we justify this race-based slavery? Because the move to the new world for so many was a move toward religious freedom. And so how did we understand what did the Bible have to say about this? And so some came along and they began to use the Bible to justify slavery. They'd look at texts like Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, where Noah and his family come out and and his youngest son, Ham, has done a a deplorable thing. And so Noah curses Ham. And actually in chapter 9, verse 25, Noah says this, Cursed be Canaan, which is Ham, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And so this entire theology grew up around this story at this time to say, oh, the Africans were descendants of Ham, descendants of Canaan. And so just they're cursed. It's God's will. They've been cursed to be the lowest of slaves among their brothers. And so in that, you could just hear it even in the verse, how a superiority can grow up. That these Africans are lesser than, not really fully human. And in those eight chapters between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, the vision of the image of God in humanity has been lost. The sinfulness of the human heart blinded by greed and self-interest. And Christianity became a tool within the colonies to try to keep the slaves at bay, to, to keep them obedient. And so there was something in 1807. Have you ever heard of the slave Bible? It was a Bible that was actually distributed among the slaves as a means to encourage their obedience. Well, here's the thing. They had to be very careful with this Bible because when you start reading the Bible, it it starts giving notions of like freedom and stuff like that. And so they actually went through and they started to remove all of the references to freedom, all of the references to where God is ultimately going to bring his justice against those who oppress other peoples. And so they had to remove like the entire book of Exodus. Because if you know that story, it's about God personally bringing his people out of slavery. That might inspire some slaves to revolution. And so they had to remove all of these references. Do you know how much was left? About 20%. That's all. I mean, does the Bible justify slavery? Does it justify this racism? I mean, if so, why would those who are using it to justify slavery and using it to keep slaves at bay have to shred it so thoroughly? In 1857, Reverend Frederick Ross published a book entitled Slavery, Ordained of God, where he argues that slavery is good for the slaves. Well, President Lincoln in 1858, responding to this book, responding to Frederick Ross, says this, he says, as a good thing, slavery is strikingly peculiar in this, that it is the only good thing which no man ever seeks the good of for himself. If it's so good to be a slave, why not give up all your slaves and become a slave yourself? I mean, Lincoln sees so clearly the the hypocrisy 
of trying to justify slavery through the Bible. And really, the reality is this, this idea that slavery is ubiquitous, it misses the whole trajectory of the Bible itself. As God is moving all of history, as we said, toward that picture of Revelation, where around the throne of God will be that beautiful, diverse mosaic of people. All grateful for his grace and his mercy, all offering the best of what they have to honor God. I mean, Bible rejects slavery, but here's the thing. We have to go deeper to address the reality of the divide that exists still today among races. And so we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 8 briefly to try to address this. And if you want, you can follow along on the screen. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there's no one, no God but one. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may find yourself wondering, what does all this meat sacrifice to idols have anything to do with what we're talking about? And I'm so glad you asked. Because on one hand, it seems just kind of like a, a doctrinal issue and dispute, doesn't it? But when we peel it back, we start to see some more things emerge because what Paul is addressing is that in the Corinthian church, there's this reality that there are a bunch of folks who have been converted to the Christian faith out of pagan idol worship. And, and, and as a part of their idol worship and, and these pagan practices was certainly the meat sacrificed to idols, but there was a lot of other unsavory activities. There was prostitution and other rituals that went into the worship of these so-called gods. And so some of these converted people couldn't seem to get themselves extracted completely from those notions. And, and in Corinth, the problem was basically all of the meat available in the markets had been in some way sacrificed to these idols. And so they couldn't get it out of their head that this meat was connected to all of that old life. And Paul is calling these Gentile, non-Jewish background converts, he, he's calling them weak. And the reason he calls them weak is because they haven't applied the fullness of the gospel to their lives. Don't, don't hear what he's not saying. He's not condemning them. He's not calling them lesser than. He's just recognizing that like muscles need time to be built up in strength, people need time to be built up in strength so that they can, we can apply the fullness of the gospels to their lives. They just haven't matured to the place of understanding 
that an idol is really no idol. It's no God at all. It's just meat. Now, this, again, could just be a doctrinal issue. But if we put it right next to what Paul has written to the church in Rome, in Romans 14, I think we'll really get clarity. Because in Romans 14, too, Paul says this, One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And again, all of, all of this eating. But in Rome, Paul is addressing a, a different issue. He's addressing the reality that there are Jewish background converts who have come to faith in Christ, who are now a part of the church. But they have all of this background that tells them that they're only allowed to eat certain foods. Because according to the law, if you go back and read like Leviticus, there are some foods that are clean, some foods that are unclean, not because they've been sacrificed to idols, but because God has said they're inherently clean or unclean. And we can talk about why he would do that a whole other time. That's another message. But they have come out of this You know, they've come to faith, a recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, that no longer do they have to fulfill the fullness of the law because Jesus has fulfilled it for them. He's done for them what they could never do for themselves, but they're still struggling with their background. And Paul calls those Jewish background converts weak. Again, not because they're lesser than, but because they haven't developed the strength and the maturity to apply the fullness of the gospel to recognize that the clean laws have been fulfilled in Christ. They don't need to worry about it anymore. And so what happens here is we see in Rome, Paul calls the Jewish background Christians weak. In Corinth, he calls the Gentile background Christians weak. In both, in different contexts, either can be weak or strong. What it's telling us is that this isn't doctrinal. There's an ethnic cultural issue here. That that's the reality that depending on their cultural, ethnic background, they struggle with one aspect of the gospel compared to another. And he's addressing each in different contexts because they're all struggling to understand what is acceptable in the relationship before God, and each disagrees based on their cultural, ethnic background. And so how do they deal with it? I mean, like so many issues, we don't have an exact comparison today, but man, we have our own issues that we have to ask, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with the reality of the the incarceration rates that seem so disproportionate, particularly for African-American men? The wealth disparity between minorities and non-minorities. The reality of of the destruction of the black family. How do we deal with these cultural and ethnic issues? And there's a number of ways that I think we try to deal with it. I think the first is, is just denial, where we just try to say, you know what, I, I don't see color, there's no issue. Well, I don't see color is often a way of just saying, I don't really want to deal with the issues that are presenting. Because how can we not see color? We see color. We see it every day. The question is, what are we going to do with what we see? And, and denial has become a huge part of our response. Denial, right, not just the history of slavery that we've talked about, but denial, how about denial that the Reconstruction period had an incredible start and that black Americans had risen to places of prominence and authority throughout the government, throughout business. They were developing for themselves wealth and prosperity for them and for their families, and then there was an intentional effort to thwart it all. Slavery wasn't legal anymore, and so it became Jim Crow laws, and it became lynchings and intimidation. We can deny that that happened and that there's lingering effect. We can deny the practices of redlining. 
you don't know what redlining is, it's, it was the practice particularly of denying particular banking, financial insurance, and even healthcare services to very particular neighbors of people. And so they would literally, on maps, draw red lines. And which areas do you think got denied? Those with ethnic minorities. We can deny that that happened. We can deny the effects that that had on the ability to pass generational wealth to children and children and children because they couldn't own homes, because it kept the areas that they lived in depressed in value. We can deny the reality that maybe 1.2 million black Americans were denied the promised prosperity and benefits of the GI Bill coming out of World War II, having fought valiantly willing and to risk and sacrifice everything for the sake of the country, and yet coming home, 1.2 million denied the ability to have education, to get homes. They'd been carved out of the bill, or at least its application. We can also deny the advancements that we've made as a society, which is happening as well. Deny the fact that we've had legislation that has sought to try to remedy these challenges, and so we can forget the fact that in 1948, our military was integrated. 1954, our schools were integrated. 1964, Civil Rights Act, that we could no longer discriminate for hiring, promotions, firing based on ethnicity, race. 1965, Voting Rights Act. 1968, Fair Housing Act. All of these le sweeping legislation to be intentional about seeking to eradicate the systemic nature of racism. And so, it became legally wrong to discriminate. But we can also deny that though it's legally wrong, we can deny the very real experience of blacks, browns, Asians, and Latinos today. I've never had the experience of black friends that have told me the experience of driving while black. And this is a phenomenon where mothers of black children terrified because their kids are driving, knowing that there is a disproportionate rate of being pulled over because you're black, especially if you're a black man. I mean, I hear stories from all sorts of walks of life, something I've never had to live, and yet pulled over for no apparent reason, nothing wrong with the vehicle, no violations of traffic laws, but simply the only common thread is blackness. We can deny that this is the very real experience. In addition to denial, another way that we try to deal with this is blame. Man, blame is like, it's the oldest game, isn't it? It goes back to the garden. You know, hey, did you eat the fruit? Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat, Adam? Oh, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's either her fault or yours. I don't know, but it's clearly not mine. Right? We just, blame has this amazing ability. We, we don't want to have to be responsible and so if we can give it away to somebody else, I don't have to do anything about it because it's their fault. And so we can blame the victims. We can blame the weak, as Paul, in Paul's terminology. Blame them for the generations. We can blame the, the failure of the legislation and the policies. We can blame the oppressors. We can blame the strong in, in Paul's language. We can blame the entire system must be stacked against and in the process deny that some have somehow been able to improve themselves to rise up out of the system. And so then we can blame those who succeed. Guilt's another option that seems to be pervasive today. You know, that, 
this idea that particularly if you're white, the way to deal with all, all of this division is to just feel terrible about being white. And this is an idea that's being pushed on people all the time. And actually, it's kind of like if you feel, the more guilty you feel about all of the situation, the history, then like the better you are. And if you don't feel guilty about it, then there's something wrong with you. And it's like this guilt somehow puffs up in Paul's language again from 1 Corinthians 8. The knowledge of how terrible I am and my heritage is and my ancestors are, somehow it becomes a badge of honor. And so we can live in denial, we can blame, we can just live in the midst of guilt, but guilt doesn't seem to motivate anything, does it? It doesn't seem to bring any real lasting change, does it? I mean, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 8, all of this, all of this puffs up. Yeah, you think you know. You think you know what the problem is. You think you know what the solution is. But you think you know, but you do not know as you ought, says Paul. In other words, I think the question for us is, what do you really know in all of this? What do I really know? Because very quickly, my knowledge can lead me to become puffed up, puffed up in anger, puffed up in pride, puffed up in defensiveness. And Paul's saying, man, that's not working, is it? Because knowledge, all this knowledge puffs up, but love ultimately builds up. And, and with Paul pointing out that there are the weak and there are the strong, but guess what? You might be the weak on this one. You might be the strong on this one. It depends. But actually what he's saying is every culture and ethnicity has something to teach another, has another perspective on the gospel, has another perspective on who God is, has something for us to learn from one another, but how can we possibly listen and learn? I mean, we've got to grow together but man, all of this attack and defensiveness has got to go or else we will never have a real conversation. See, here's something interesting in this passage. Paul is so clear on the issue itself. He says, this meat's not a big deal. These idols aren't real. It doesn't matter. What really matters is that God is the Father of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. That's all that really matters. You know, that... So he knows what the right answer is on this gray issue, but here's the thing he doesn't do. He doesn't tell the weak to get over it and start eating meat. Actually, his commands, if you see this in this passage, is to the strong. He says, for the strong, be careful. Be careful how you use your rights. Be careful how you use your strength. Be careful how you use your privilege. Be careful how you use the knowledge that God has given you. Don't allow the exercise of your rights, don't allow the exercise of your freedoms, of your benefits, don't allow that to become a stumbling block for others. Put them above you. Put their interest above your own. In other words, Paul says, sacrifice. If eating meat causes my brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again, he says. He would sacrifice that whole thing. And I think this is actually at the heart of this issue around races for us because in the middle of all of this, there is sacrifice required, demanded of us. And I'll be honest, I don't know that I want to sacrifice. I mean, sacrifice is called sacrifice for a reason. What's it going to cost me to see these things righted? See, and this is where I become more and more convinced that I think actually the gospel is our only real hope to heal the racial division, 
because knowledge puffs up. But Paul tells us love builds up, and the gospel is the only thing that shows us what love really looks like. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts the gospel this way. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's the reality of the gospel. The gospel tells me that I am a sinner that I deserve the death on the cross that Jesus died, that the sin blinds me from being able to see the beautiful image of God in other people, and that I can't deal with my own selfishness, my own sinfulness, my own unwillingness to sacrifice that I needed God to send his son to become a slave who would die a brutal death in my place so that I could be set free from my sin and blindness. That's what my sin demands. And if that's what my sin demands, does the gospel not bring me to my knees in humility? That I realize that I am not superior to anyone else, that I am not better than anyone else, and that perhaps, maybe just perhaps in my sin, I have been wrong and I have something to learn, and maybe I will be finally willing to listen when I've been humbled before the cross. But be very clear, this is not about feeling guilty. Because the gospel also raises you up beyond any sort of status the world could possibly offer you. In the gospel, in Jesus' sacrifice for you, he has restored the image of God in you that has been broken by sin. He's restored that image. He restores our eyes so that we can begin to see all of humanity as beautiful, as worthy of the sacrifice that God has made and worthy of a sacrifice that I might make as well. The gospel humbles us before one another and raises all of us up to the heights where we can gather around the throne of grace and praise God. Is the Bible, is Christianity racist? No. No, it rejects the whole notion of of slavery. It rejects the entire idea of superiority of one ethnicity over another that it brings us to the cross, which humbles us, brings us to our knees, that we could finally perhaps listen, care for, sacrifice, speak truthfully, boldly, but lovingly with and to one another, and it restores that beautiful image of God and sets us on the trajectory of history, which is a unity of the human race before the throne of grace. And if we can't get this right in the church, if we can't be a place where we can have these honest conversations where we can have this honest assessment, where we can begin to talk about what it would look like, I I don't know if there's hope for our culture beyond. Because the gospel is the only thing that can tear down this dividing wall of hostility among us. Let's pray. Lord God, we are yours, claimed at your cross by your sacrifice for us. May you lead us humbly into ongoing conversations where we listen well, where we speak boldly what we know is true for the benefit of the other, not just for ourselves. Lord, may you bring a healing that we are not able to bring ourselves, and may we, your church, be the light and the salt in the the darkness of this world. May we model another way forward where we can praise the God of the nations in unity. 